and um, we're, we're continuing to talk about honor, and we've moved over into a part of our study now where we're looking at case studies in honor. In, in other words, what we mean by that is, is people in the scriptures that were men and women of honor and, and, and how God was able to honor those people uh, because they honored him. We see the principle that God honors those who honor him. But also, we're able to see you know, real-life, real-time examples, so to speak, of, of what honor actually looks like. Um, it, it's not enough for honor to just be a concept that, that we recognize or you know, have some understanding of. But you know, what does it look like actually on display in a person's life? And, and of course, Jesus pointed to two examples uh, in, uh, in Luke, the fourth chapter, uh, one being a widow in Zarephath and another being uh, Naaman the Syrian, uh, who both received God because of the honor that they showed him uh, and the honor that they showed uh, his prophets. Now, before we get into that, though, um, my uh, uh, son-in-law, um, we, I call him son in grace or son in love because we're not under the law anymore. But um, uh, Jake and I, we had an interesting conversation yesterday, and he, he pointed something out to me that I thought was worth mentioning here, and it was, again, honor on display. Now, if you're not into college football, you don't have to be to appreciate um, what I'm fixing to share with you, okay? There's the coach at, uh, Hugh, at Texas now is Steve Sarkeesian, and if you have followed his career, you know that he was an up-and-coming coach in Washington, and uh, USC uh, hired him, and he had a very public firing because of his struggles with alcohol. And he was uh, considered by a lot of folks to be uh, damaged goods. And if you've heard him tell his story, uh, he couldn't even get an interview for a coaching position, uh, much less find a coaching job. And, of course, along comes uh, Coach Saban, who saw uh, the, the value and the benefit of Coach Sarkeesian and hired him not once but twice to be on his staff at, um, at Alabama. Now, <clears throat> I know that some of you could care less about college football, and then some of you could care even less about Alabama football, so please, I'm not trying to stir up any kind of, um, you know, rivalries among teams or, or, or what have you. Certainly, Coach Saban will be remembered for the number of national championships that he has won, but I believe his legacy is much more profound than that, and that is all of the championship coaches that he has mentored and trained and developed and then sent out that are now his rivals. He, he, he's now got a, you know, I mean, it was, it was one of his understudies that beat him in the national championship game um, last year. But here is why I bring this up this morning as it relates to honor. When interviewed um, with the game leading up, you know, to yesterday's uh, match between Alabama and Texas, Coach Sarkeesian said this. He said, I would not have a coaching job and would definitely not be the head coach at Texas if it were not for Coach Nick Saban. 
Now, if you know the story, not just that he was studied under Coach Saban and, and kind of regained his reputation, but when Texas was reluctant to hire him, Coach Saban went behind the scenes and vouched for him and said, look, this, uh, I've worked with this man now for some time, and he can be trusted. <clears throat> now, why am, I, why am I pointing that out to you? Do you realize how many people that Coach Saban, how many coaches that are head coaches now that do not show him that kind of honor, but they take jabs at him in the media every time they get, they get, a, they get a chance to? As I'm pointing out the, the honor that Coach Sarkeesian has for Coach Saban. But now watch this. This is this to me, and I, I've had to kind of say this in the mirror time or two to keep from my voice breaking when I say it. They asked him about, they asked Coach Sarkeesian about facing Coach Saban on Saturday leading up to that game. Before the game, they asked him, and this is what he said. He said, I want Texas to play well because I don't want to disappoint Coach. How about that right there? I want my team to play well because I don't want to disappoint my hero on the other side of the field. See, that's honor. Are you seeing this? That's honor. That's honor on display. That's a man who recognizes what another man has done for him and how another man has helped him. And rather than being prideful and arrogant, oh, we're going to beat him. I'm gonna... No, 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 no. I just want our team to play well so I don't disappoint, Coach. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. It is powerful. Praise God. So, we said that honor must be leaned into. Just a few key points that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. Honor must be leaned into. And one of the things I hope we get to this morning is that when you lean into honor, you see opportunities that you're blinded to when you lean away from honor. Leaning into honor will open your eyes to opportunities. God provided God-given opportunities that if you are leaning away from honor, uh, opposite to honor, uh, you, you will be blinded to those same opportunities or, or view those opportunities as unreasonable, view those opportunities as, as uh, you know, burdensome obligations as opposed to joyous opportunities. We said that honor is a deliberate and intentional act that we honor on purpose. We honor on purpose. You never accidentally honor. Honor on purpose. And then last week we, we dug into this a little deeper. We said that off, off, offense, being offended, at, uh, so offense and honor cannot exist in the same heart at the same time. These are opposite ends of the spectrum. And again, I won't try to re-preach that from last week, but remember this is why the devil tries so hard to prevent to present you and me with all kinds of, of opportunities throughout our day and week to be offended. Now, I asked you last week to be on the lookout for it. Uh, I had multiple opportunities this week to be offended. Almost took one of them, but I didn't. Um, see, now, that, because, I, again, I'm just exposing the devil. I'm not, you know, part of a little voice inside of me said, don't tell him this because the devil will try to use no, no, See, See, if, if, if the hardest offense for me to resist is, is when it's something involving somebody else, you know, and, I, and I, all of a sudden now I'm ready to take, the Bible says don't take another person's offense. See, you know, you got somebody else that you feel like is being treated unfairly, now all of a sudden you're all offended and you don't even know the whole story. Okay, and the, the, the enemy almost got me on that one, but praise God, the Lord prompt, hey, hey, remember Sunday. All right, so offense and honor cannot exist in the same heart at the same time. Now, let's go... Um, to Luke, the fourth chapter, and the 23rd verse. Luke chapter 4 and verse 23. 
um, this is Luke's account of what we also see from uh, the Gospel of Mark in Mark the 6th chapter. And so I'm trying to, to keep from reading both and, and talking about both. I'm just trying to give you a quick review. If, if you haven't been here for any of these messages, they're all recorded free of charge, podcast, uh, video, whatever you want to do it, download it, listen to it online, so forth and so on. But what we see in Mark 6 is that Jesus, after having tremendous ministry success uh, in the region, he comes to his hometown of Nazareth, does in Nazareth what he's done in all these other cities, but in Nazareth he is not honored. Instead, he is insulted. He, they are offended at Jesus. And the Bible says because of their offense, it literally tied his hands. He, was, he could not do any mighty work. Not wouldn't, couldn't do any mighty work among them. But what did he do? The Bible says that instead of getting angry and, and lashing out at them, that he went from village to village teaching. He came out of the synagogue where there was a large crowd and went to you know, smaller villages uh, and areas where he could reach the people and talk to them in, in, in smaller groups, kind of breaking that, I think, mob mentality sometimes that develops in, in, in a large crowd of people. But the point that we emphasized last week about that, and I just want to kind of jump in here again this morning, is that uh, Jesus kept trying to reach these people despite their blindly ignoring him and rejecting him. And aren't you glad his love for us motivates him to pursue us even when we turn from him and, and run from him? So uh, we see that um, he doubled his efforts and went from village to village teaching the people uh, despite their harsh and public rejection of him. Now... In Luke, the fourth chapter, where you are right now in verse 23, um, we get some idea of what it is that Jesus was addressing or trying to correct among the people. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And that word accepted there means uh, properly valued or, or properly received. But I tell you, Truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now we haven't read these last two verses. We've mentioned them these last few verses, but let's, let's do it now. So, verse 28, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these sayings, were filled with wrath. Wrath here means rage. I mean, they got highly, highly upset and angry. And rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. <laughs> so, if it weren't for a divine intervention here, they would have killed Jesus on the spot. That's how angry they became when he said what he said to them about the widow and about Naaman. So if you're not familiar with, with those two stories, what we see is that both widow, the widow in Zarephath and um, Naaman, the Syrian, neither one of these two were Jewish. Technically, you know, legally, neither one of these... Uh, Either the widow or Naaman had a covenant with God. And so Jesus is trying to explain to them 
that, you know, of all the Jewish people who were starving widows and men or women, whatever, dying with leprosy, uh, none of them uh, had a prophet sent to them or were healed by uh, God's representative, okay? Uh, but you know, these two exceptions. And so notice now, they're, they're greatly, greatly offended. I want to I talk to you for just a moment about that because I think sometimes, you know, if we get the wrong impression that, uh, you know, Jesus was just, uh, you know, low blow here. I'm, I'm fixing to punch him below the belt. I'm, you know, you're going to hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You know, you're going you're gonna to disrespect me, I'm going to disrespect you back. No, no, that, I, I believe the tone, now obviously Jesus was very firm and very bold. I'm not trying to act like he wasn't. But it wasn't like Jesus was, um, you know, swinging at them to hurt them. I believe his tone was kind of, and just bear with me because I want you to get the spirit of this as opposed to the letter. I believe Jesus was like, now no, listen, guys, I'm trying to help you see something here that maybe you're blinded to. Remember now, prophet's not without honor except in his own country. Um, that's a principle that's well established in Scripture, and you're falling into that very trap yourself. I'm just trying to get you to see this. Um, there were a lot of people who needed help in Elijah's day, but there was only one that God was able to help. Uh, and So what is Jesus trying to do here? He's pointing out all the people who missed out on what could have otherwise been God's protection and provision and healing hand in their life and, and why that was the case. He's not, again, he's not trying to uh, uh, you know, just be uh, argumentative or pick a fight. It's not, that's not what he was about. Now, let's take a little bit of a, of a side journey because I think this will help you uh, to see uh, not just the heart of God in, in, a, in, a, in a bigger way, but things that I think are, are you know, applicable to you and me. So here's a statement we've made over and over again. God has to be able to communicate with you to help you, and his ability to communicate with you depends upon the honor you have for him. He has to be able to communicate with you to help you, and his ability to communicate with you depends upon the honor you have for him. Now, we see in Romans 10, let's go uh, to Romans uh, chapter 10. We'll spend a few minutes here, okay? So you can go ahead and turn your Bibles if you'd like to. Romans 10 and verse number 13. Romans 10 and 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher or without someone to tell them? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, here the Holy Spirit inspires uh, the Apostle Paul to quote from Isaiah in verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Now, let's look at that verse in its entirety, because again, it, it opens up, I think, a broader understanding of what's being said here. So I'll put it up on the screen. Just stay right there where you are in Romans. Isaiah 53 and 1, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the two questions are related because 
the arm of the Lord is revealed to those who believe his report. That's, that's what he's trying to say here. In other words, if, you, if you're not going to believe what it is that God's saying to you, then how can the arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord represents God's strength, his, his ability, his power uh, to, to work on your behalf. And so if, if we do not believe the report of the Lord, we will not see the arm of the Lord working on our behalf. That's, that's the, the, the message that's being communicated here. And so do you see now why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul in, in Romans 10 to, uh, to present this? He's talking about you know, whoever believes on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how, how can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear un, unless somebody tells them? And how can people go and tell them unless they're sent? And so then he brings uh, this uh, verse up on the table, so to speak, in making uh, these points. Now... The word report here, I think, is also interesting because it means a thing heard, okay? And that can either be news, are you ready for this, or rumor. And we know from Jesus' situation that there were a lot of rumors about him. A lot of things that, that people weren't necessarily sure about, that weren't necessarily founded or established in their minds. Some of those rumors were inaccurate. But some of the rumors circulating about Jesus were straight up truth. They, they were accurate. Okay? So notice even the report can be a rumor that you've heard. If that rumor, as it relates to God, is truth or is um, accurate. I remember, I remember back in the day when the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues was just a rumor to me. <laughs> Come on now. You know, I've heard about them folk. I've heard about people who do that. Right? I've, I, I, you know, I don't know what to think about them, but I've heard rumor. I've heard people actually do this today. Right? Okay. So, let's keep going, though. It doesn't end there. Verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Now, this is the tactic that Jesus was using that day in Nazareth. The one that we see quoted here from the Old Testament by the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 and 19. I will provoke you to jealousy... I will move you to anger. Now, this word provoke to jealousy, it's obviously four words that come from a single Greek word that literally means movement toward a certain point of desire or movement towards a certain point of zeal. So when it says provoke to jealousy, you know, we think, well, wait a second, jealousy is not necessarily a good thing. Jealousy and being jealous of somebody else, doesn't the Bible tell us we shouldn't do that? And so obviously, you know, when it talks about God is a jealous God, He is holy, 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 He is righteous and just. Um, and so when it says God is jealous of you, that means He doesn't like you giving attention and affection to other people and other things that belongs to Him. So with God, it's a holy thing. But here when it says that He's provoking other people to jealousy, or in this particular situation, provoking Jewish people to jealousy... What he's saying here is that he's trying to move them to a place of desire. He's trying to stir up desire within them. Remember, what things soever you desire when you pray. 
Jesus on one occasion said, what can I compare this generation to? We played the flute for you, a time of celebration, and you refused to dance. And then there was a time of mourning when, when you know, the nation should be grieving and mourning over its sin and repentance. He says, but you refused to mourn. In other words, nothing affected them, nothing moved them. And Jesus knows that if he leaves them in the situation that he's found them in, that they're going to die. They're going to miss out completely. Not just on what he can do for them in in their lives right now, the, the desperate needs that they have for his healing, for his deliverance, for his provision in their lives right now, but they're going to miss out on eternity that God has for them. So what does he do? He provokes them to jealousy. Not because he like... In other words, do you see this, right? When he points out a non-Jewish widow and a non-Jewish military commander who both received from God while Jewish uh, widows and Jewish uh, lepers did not receive from God. You see how this could provoke them to jealousy and the, the word move to anger, three word translated again from a single Greek word that means move to a point of anger or irritation. I think sometimes we have viewed anger in and of itself, you know, incorrectly. Um, Anger is an emotion that we have the capacity to express and experience because the God who created us in His image and likeness has the ability, the capacity to get angry. Anger in and of itself is not a bad thing. This is why the Scriptures tell us, be angry but do not sin. See, these folks got angry and now they're fixing to sin. They're about to kill Jesus. They're about to murder him. But how many of you know there are some things that should anger us? There are some things that should irritate us. And, and, and that anger and that irritation should move us. See, let me say, let me just try to, I'm not, I don't want to water this down, but I'm trying to help you understand it. Jesus said some things that made these people uncomfortable. It made them uncomfortable. And he did it on purpose. Because if he left them in that comfortable place, they're more than likely going to die there without him. So he loved them enough to make them uncomfortable. I never never want to offend you. I never want to... and, And this is one of the areas that I have to really, you know watch myself on because I will sometimes try to figure out an easier way to say something because I don't want to offend you. I don't want to make you mad. But listen, part of my job is to make you uncomfortable. And sometimes I'm not comfortable with that. Sometimes that makes me uncomfortable. So I, don't want, I don't want to make you uncomfortable. But again, becoming uncomfortable, because what happens when we're not comfortable? If, if something is irritating us, we're going to try to figure out uh, you know, some way to get some relief from that discomfort. Are you hearing me? So, listen, I know that there are people who have taken this truth to places that God never meant for it to go. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying? You know, people that blame God for all kind of natural disasters and this and that. No, 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 my friend, that's the devil's work. He's the ruler of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the one who's, who's come to only kill, steal, and destroy. You see, when, whenever, you know, something you read in the scriptures that makes you uncomfortable, it's because, you know, the Bible says it should be this way in my life, but if I'm going to be honest with you right now, my life experience isn't reflecting that. Now, here's another one. Are you ready for this? And, and, and this is, I'm, I'm, I'm walking a really thin edge right here. So, again, I'm asking you to hear the spirit of this and not the letter. 
But when you see people who are walking in places with God that you are not walking in, you got a choice to either be motivated to, to, to come on up with them or to be irritated at them and try to pull them down. Don't make that mistake of pulling them down. When you see somebody walking in levels of prosperity and blessing and power and authority that you are not yet walking in your life, you cheer for them. You get excited for them. Let the attitude of your heart be, if God will do it for them, he'll do it for me. If God will give them a car, he'll give me a car. If God will operate in their lives like that, then he'll operate in my life like that. Because that's what Jesus is ultimately trying to say to these people. He had to go find a non-Jewish widow because no widow in Jerusalem was willing to honor the prophet. The prophet was there, the prophet in Israel was there, but, but none of the Jewish people honored him. But God found somebody who would honor him. And the point being, right, if you'll honor God today by honoring the people that he has sent to you, by honoring, in, in this case, Jesus, God sent him to them, then it'll enable God to work in the same way in your life. You still with me? Now, I want to, I guess today we're just sharing some stories, okay? And I don't think, I know mom won't mind, I don't think Matthew will mind me telling a story. Um, as Matt will tell you, if you ever take a bite of food before we say the blessing, he'll say, oh, 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 oh we were raised Christian. We pray over our food. You know, it's kind of an inside family joke with us, but, you know, raised Christian. We were raised Christian. We were raised in church. And, and um, Matt went through some rebellious years in, in his uh, mid-teenage years. Um, when I say rebellious years, compared to rebellious years today for kids, you know, anyway, um, but still, re- rebellious at least for the standard that um, my parents held for, for us. And um, here was the turning point in, uh, in Matthew's life, okay? And I, I had a front row seat. In, um, on Saturday mornings, uh, most Saturday mornings, Mom and Dad would fix a big breakfast. And... Um, when they remodeled the kitchen there that we grew up in in Hueytown, they put this stove in that had a griddle. And Dad loves to make uh, pancakes. He can make really good ones. And you men uh, know what kind of gravy he can make to go on a biscuit. And uh, so it was just a big breakfast. And I happen to be a big breakfast fan. Okay. My older brother and younger sister, on the other hand, they were, you know, I don't know if it's changed with him, Vanessa, but in those days, if there was never another breakfast meal served, he was fine with that. He you know, it wasn't his thing. It was my thing, right? So I'm there, and I'm ready to eat, and Mom and Dad's done called everybody two or three times. And, and uh, so finally, Matt staggers up from his downstairs bedroom, and he has a crick in his neck, a really bad one, okay? And um, again, he... On an average Saturday morning, he wasn't in the best of moods in those days, but especially this morning because he was hurting, okay? And we were both, if you've ever seen pictures of me and Matt back in those days, our arms were about the size of that chair leg in front of you. And we were like, um, you know, 170, 180 pounds in those days. And Matt sat down at the, you know, he'd sit like this. And all on his neck was hurting and, so he got up and he walked in the kitchen and mom's at the stove and he's kind of sour, you know. And um, so I'm going to kind of 
I'm going to turn my back to you for just a minute because I'm going to be mom, and Matt's going to be standing about right here, okay? So she, she's sitting there working, and she turns around, and when she sees him, I'm watching all this now, when she sees him, she goes, I mean, I thought, she, I thought, man, Lord Jesus, what's about to happen, right? I mean, she brought it from downtown. She swung backhand across his shoulder, never touched him, but her hand, you know, that far from the side of his head, that far from his shoulder, went across him like that, and she said, get off of him in the name of Jesus. Well, his head was turned sideways from the crick, and when she did that, his head, his neck went like that, like it had literally released, okay? Now, what we found out later, again, discerning of spirits, when my mother just glanced up from the eggs, right, she said it was a demon imp, that was her words, okay, I-M-P, she said the demon was about that big, and it was sitting on Matt's shoulder, and it has a little hand cupped over his mouth, and he was mocking her and the things of God uh, to Matt in his ear. That's what she saw in that moment. And it would have been like if she'd looked up and saw a tarantula on his shoulder, or a big cockroach or something, a spider. You saw, in other words, it wasn't like, well, let me make a big scene here. It was like a mother's re- reflex, right? She knocked that thing off his shoulder. Get off him in the name of Jesus. Now, watch this. Let me go back to the verse. What's still on the screen. Move to anger. Also comes to anger where that means move to a point of anger irritation. Here's the turning point for Matt. Are you ready? It made him mad. And he couldn't justify it in his mind. It kept bothering him. Why did that make me mad? I was hurting. I was in ag- I was agonizing, miserable pain. And mom did that, and it instantly released, no pain. Why did that make me mad? It should have made me happy. I should have hugged her. I should have been thankful. But instead, what? He was initially offended. Are you saying? He was initially offended. Okay, but in the days on ahead, and how how long after that? Yeah, it, 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 you've heard Matt talk about. He came home on a Sunday night. Me and Meredith were already in bed, and um, mom and dad were still up. And he just started pouring his heart out to him. And he said, "I want to live for God, but I don't think that I can. And I know I don't want to be a phony." And, Mom shared, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. And that one kind of went off as Jesse DePlan said, like a shotgun. And, um, and then mom and dad laid hands on him and prayed for him, and he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And for, I don't exaggerate it, nine hours? How many hours? Till 6 o'clock the next morning, um, he prayed in every unknown and known tongue. I recognize some French, because I, I took French in, in school. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like every he sang in the spirit he prayed i mean it was like and of course mom and dad didn't know me and meredith were sitting on the steps you know in the other room listening to all this and finally after about two hours into it you know they said i guess we ought to go wake up mark and meredith and let them see this and of course dad you know we were like we're here you know we're we're watching this right okay so now 
you can very easily misunderstand this. And so, oh, so all I got to do is get my family saved and make them mad. No, see, that's, that's a wrong understanding. Well, let me just make them jealous. No, that's, that's not what he's saying here. But it's, it's something that will make them uncomfortable. Are you, see, sometimes we're so afraid, well, I don't, I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm not going to tell them about what God's teaching me. Tell them. Tell them. You see, well, you know, I, I don't want my family to be all, you know, think I'm coming in here Bible thumping. Listen, just tell them. So don't thump the Bible. Just tell them what Jesus has done for you. T- tell them what he's showing you. Tell them the difference that it's made in your life. It may irritate them. It may make them uncomfortable. It might even make them mad. But you know what? It might be the very thing that turns their heart. Remember all those verses we looked at in Matthew 13? Those who have a ready heart for this, the insights and understanding slow freely. But those who do not have a ready heart for this can stare at it till doomsday and they'll never see it. So that's why Jesus said, I tell, I tell stories because I'm trying to create a ready heart in people, a heart that's ready to receive, a heart that's ready to, to, to listen to and respond to what it is that God is trying to say into their lives. And so when these people treated Jesus so rudely and so disrespectfully, this was not a low blow, but it was meant to make them uncomfortable, and it did. Now watch this. I don't know what all they really heard Jesus say that day, but I guarantee you one thing, they heard that. Are you seeing this? They heard that. They heard the part about the widow, and they heard the part about Naaman. And they responded. See, see, watch this now. I don't know. God's just trying to get you to respond. He's trying to, listen, I would, let's go to the book of Revelation. I would that you were either hot or cold. But when we get in that mediocre, milk toast, lukewarm, indifferent, nothing makes us laugh, nothing makes us cry, nothing gets us excited, nothing we're, nothing we're passionate about, nothing we're zealous about. And all that. See, again, th- th- God can do little to nothing in, with, and through your life when you're in that situation right there. And that's where these people were. Their attitude toward Jesus was, well, you know, he's a curiosity. We could take him or leave him. I was interested if what we'd heard, the rumors about him were true. Um, but he's evidently not going to do anything here to prove to us that he is who he says he is. And so, you know, like, because again, they're, they're not leaning into honor. They're leaning out from honor. And they're blinded to it. Have I spent too much time on this or are you seeing what I'm saying here? Okay. So you say, well, I don't, I don't want to make the people I work with uncomfortable. Don't, don't be a jerk. And don't, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. Jesus wasn't being a jerk here. He wasn't, you know, they, they presented an opportunity for him to be offended. He was not offended at these people. He loved these people. But he knew that if he didn't do something, at least give them something to consider, something to think about, nothing was ever going to be any different or any better in their lives. Now, Jesus' statements about the widow and Naaman were not low blows or him striking back in anger to wound them deeper than they wounded him. In their current state, this was the one thing they had ears to hear. And boy, did they hear him when he said it. Now, praise God. I've got, amen, you got a few minutes? (laughs) Okay. 
There's something here I got to give you, okay? I'm, I'm, when I say I got to, it's, it's just I need I need to give it to you. We may have to do some more explaining on it next week. All right. So our case study in honor, the first one that Jesus pointed to, not just for them but for us, right? Let's let's read about this woman. And so we find her in First Kings chapter 17. We'll begin at verse nine. He says to Elijah, "Arise, go to Zarephath." which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now let's just stop right here. He didn't say, I have suggested, I have... um, No, he said command. And that's that's a really strong word, and the literal translation is as strong, if not stronger. God says, I have ordered her. I have ordered her to provide for you. And so we see that this woman did what God had instructed her to do, commanded her to do. See, there I go. No, he didn't instruct her, he commanded her. And we see that ultimately God's provision in her life came through a door of honor. came through a door of honor. Now, nothing reveals honor or a lack of it better than our response to a command from God. This goes back to the agape versus philo conversations that we've been having now most of this year. It's one thing to have a fond, affectionate place in your heart for the Lord. It's another thing to respect him enough to do what he says. Honor does not turn a command into a request, suggestion, or option to be considered. We said doing what God commands is the best thing you can do for him because it's the best thing you can do for yourself. I want you to spend some time thinking about that statement right there. I'm 100% convinced it's backed by Scripture but came in that form to me from the Holy Spirit. Doing what God commands is the best thing you can do for Him because it's the best thing He can do for yourself. What what do we mean by that? Are we just trying to sound poetic? No, you see, everything God says to you has your best interest in mind. When you will listen to Him and do what He says and and obey His commands, it puts you in a position for Him to, to be able to do in and through and for you in your life what it is that He desires so desperately to do. So here's here's the question. How do you view a command from God? A burdensome obligation or a joyous opportunity? A burdensome obligation or a joyous opportunity? 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So a lack of honor will cause you to be offended by and miss out on an opportunity you should otherwise rejoice over. You think, man, see, it's, it's almost like Maybe I'm stretching this, but it's almost like we get offended at God. How dare you command this 
poor, pitiful widow. I mean, she's not just trying to keep herself alive. She's trying to keep her son alive. And now you're commanding her to take the last cake she has and give it to the prophet? I mean, that prophet needs to go get a job. What in the world? You know, I mean, you can dig a ditch like anybody else. I mean, this woman, what, no, see, God was smiling on this widow when he commanded her to provide for his prophet. He was smiling on her. This is what i got to give you. We'll, we'll dig into it next week. Seven needed perspective on God's commands. Okay, seven. I'll pause at number three if you want to take a picture of the slide. I know some of you do that, all right? First thing, first perspective we need on God's commands is this. All of God's commands are opportunities to live on a higher level. All of them. Every single one of them. Not just on a higher moral level. See, I think that's where a lot of people uh, misunderstand the commands of God. It's like, well, you know, we just, we just need to... We need to be morally good people. Yes, the commands of God will have you living on a higher moral level, but they'll also have you living on a higher emotional level, a higher financial level, a higher social level. Number two, all of God's commands are invitations to trust Him for a better life. It's an invite. It's not going to make you obey Him. He's inviting you to trust Him for a better life by obeying His command. Number three, all of God's commands are summons, are a summons to do things His way. It's a summons, right? You ever been summoned for jury duty? Summoned to some... I mean, it's, a, it's, an, it's an official, legal um, uh, word. You know, God's calling you to do things his way. And, and, and all of his commands are a call or a summons to do things his way, okay? Number four, all of God's commands are doorways to victory. You will never obey one of God's commands and lose. It's like, well, how, how, how did your life get in such terrible condition? Obeying God's commands, man. That's not what happened to me. No, Never. Number five, all of God's commands lead to His generous provision and divine protection. Generous provision and divine protection. All of God's commands leads. Generous provision, divine connection. Okay. Number six, all of God's commands contain... I'm, this isn't working right. I'll get it there in just a minute. There we go. All of God's commands contain hidden benefits that are only revealed through obeying hidden benefits you'll never see you'll never know you'll never experience it's hidden so how, how do we how do we know obeying just, just do it all of God's commands contain hidden benefits that are only revealed through obeying anybody wants to take a picture of that when you got the picture all right and here's number seven all of God's commands are backed by his unlimited power and resources Every command and the promises that go along with them are backed by His unlimited power and resources. All right, stand with me. Praise God.
So what will leaning into honor do? Leaning into honor will give us the correct perspective on God's commands. See, if you don't have the right kind of honor for God, then we will view His commands as grievous, as the King James Version says, burdensome, obligations. Oh, you've got to do this or He's going to send us all to hell if we don't do this. And I, you know, it's like, it's so boring. Blood. You know, see, it's a, it's a joyous opportunity. It's not an obligation, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. <clears throat> this lady's honor for God, we said this last week, we'll say it again. She went from eating the last cake and dying to giving the last cake and living, right? Honor for God turned her last cake into her first cake. People say, oh, them, them preachers that have you give your last dollar to God, if you listen to them. Come on, brother. Come on. Well, God commanded this woman to give her last cake to the prophet. Was he being hard, cruel, mean? No, he was smiling on her. He was giving her an opportunity. And thank God her honor for God revealed that. She didn't see this as a death sentence. She saw it as a way out. This is, this is my only hope. A measure of everything that God, first of all, every good thing in your life comes from God. And according to God, a portion of everything He gives you is, is seed to sow and bread to eat. God gave her the opportunity to turn her last cake into a seed. Because what did she need? She knew. We're going to eat that last cake and then we're going to die because there's no more cakes after that. Unless there's some way that cake could become a seed that will produce more cakes. See, that's the ways of God. You'll never see that, though, without honoring your heart for Him. You'll just see a preacher trying to get your money. See, can you imagine how awkward Elijah must have? Of course, I don't, I don't know if Elijah felt awkward about much of anything. He was pretty bold, right? But put yourself in his shoes. Going up to a widow woman and saying, look, I know you only got one cake left. Make me one first. But see, he knew too what God was trying to do here. Her honor didn't just provide for her. If you read it carefully, the Bible says that she ate, her son ate, and Elijah ate for many days off the harvest from the one cake, from the last cake. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness to us. We thank you, Father, that you're teaching us. You're teaching us your ways. You're teaching us your truth, Lord. You're teaching us the power of your commands and the resources of heaven that are behind every word you've ever spoken to us, Father. Lord, you want good for us. You love us all. You love us all unconditionally. You love us all passionately, Father. But you honor those who honor you. And Lord, I thank you that you're teaching us how to honor, what it looks like to honor. Lord, from uh, modern-day examples on the football field and on the, on the football sidelines, Lord, to these ancient examples in Scripture, but Father, it's, it's all um, 
uh, of, of no avail if it's lost on us, Lord. So help us learn from these examples of honor and begin to model them and adapt them and walk them out, Lord, in our own lives. Lord, I thank you uh, this morning for adjusting our perspectives on your commands. Father, that you're not some hard taskmaster who's just trying to see how far you can push us, but you are a loving Heavenly Father who is trying to speak into our lives, Lord, to improve every area of our lives and the quality of it. So, Lord, thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. I pray, Father, that um, we'll carry uh, these things with us throughout our daily lives this week. Lord, that we would be aware of all the opportunities that are presented uh, by the enemy for us to be offended. And then, Lord, also aware of all the opportunities that you have made available, Lord, for us to obey and honor you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning, man. You're a good-looking bunch. God is good to us. Amen. we got a lot to be thankful for this week. You know, I know I didn't really mention it, but I imagine most of you know where you were. Was it 21 years ago now, uh, this morning, when, when uh, terrorists attacked the Twin Towers? Uh, hard to go through September 11th without thinking about that. Pray for those families today. There's still people that this is a very, very difficult day for. You may not know, or maybe you do. But you be, you be blessed. Good things coming. We'll see you Wednesday, if not before.